all of you here. Uh, there's some uh, really cool subjects that we'll be covering through the Real Conversation series, uh, testimonies, and I just got confirmed this past week that we will have a North Korean escapee uh, giving uh, her testimony at the end of September. Um, and so I'm excited for that, uh, as well as so many of the other things. Uh, if you're a college-age student, September 22nd, please remember that. We will have uh, Dr. Barry Corey from Biola giving the message on politics as well as a testimony uh, by a politician. And we will have a lunch for the college students. I believe they're doing Korean barbecue for uh, all the college students, so uh, please be here for that. You know, I, as I was preparing for my message, I thought I was all done yesterday, and I realized that Catapult, that you guys were all here. And so I, I realized I, I have to put like an illustration or something that uh, catapult students can relate to. So there's one thing that I put in for you to relate to, but I don't know if you can relate to it. Yeah. As parents, I don't know if you've ever done this, one of our jobs is to give our younger kids the illusion of choice. <laughs> right, parents? You know what I'm talking about? It's a cold winter day and your child is going off to school, and you do a Morpheus, right? So I don't know, kids, if you, can, if you know who Morpheus is, but all the people a little bit older know this was cool back then. The red pill or the blue pill, right? You have a choice. So you, we say to our little kids, as they're going off to school uh, in a cold winter day, blue jacket or red jacket? You have a choice, but it's really an illusion of choice because it doesn't really matter. You're gonna wear a jacket. You're not gonna go out in shorts and short, you know, short sleeve shirt. It's an illusion of choice. And in some ways, Romans chapter nine kind of made us think that we only have an illusion of choice. That God calls some people to salvation and he rejects others from salvation. And then, in chapter 10, we are told that actually uh, we have a tremendous uh, thing that God has given to us, uh, that from the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve this thing called a choice. That he gave Adam and Eve the ability to obey God or to reject God. And we're not quite sure how the sovereignty of God um, mixes in and, and, and really relates to the free will of man, but we are told that we have a choice. I want you to say this with me. I have a choice. Say it. I have a choice. And the person next to you, I want you to look at that person, poke him in the shoulders and say, you have a choice. Okay. It is one of the most important things about a human being, that you have a choice. God in his divine sovereignty somehow created us in his image and gave us a choice. A choice to be able to accept or to reject. When we go, uh, get to Romans chapter 10, which I'm going to begin from Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 9 verses 30 and then we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 10. But he talks about two groups of people, the called and the rejected. And in chapter 9, the called were people God called 
and the rejected are the people whom God rejected. And in a similar but a different way, God is going to talk about the called and the rejected, but, but from man's perspective. In chapter 9, verse 30, he's going to talk about the called. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness that is by faith. He's talking about Gentiles. And we will be told later on, really, ethnicity and race doesn't matter. But he uses the Gentiles or the non-Jews because the audience back then assumed that Jews automatically go to heaven and Gentiles or non-Jews do not. And he says, Gentiles, those whom we automatically think will not go to heaven, who did not pursue righteousness through the law, meaning they weren't super religious or super ethically good, but uh, they attained the righteousness that is by faith. Somehow they became righteous or good enough through this thing called faith. So we have a group of people that I'm calling the called not because God called them, but in this chapter, it's because they called God. Okay, in verse 31 now, we're going to look at the second group of people. That Israel, um, who ethnically were people whom the readers would assume will become Christians or will be good enough to go to heaven, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. So they were the ones who studied the Bible and tried really hard to be good but they did not succeed in reaching the law, so they were failures, okay? So we have two groups of people, the called and the rejected, and I'm gonna uh, approach this sermon uh, as if all of you are non-Christians, that none of you have made a decision yet to follow Christ, and I'm also gonna uh, approach this sermon as if chapter 10 uh, is a pathology report, Meaning we're going to look at two groups of people and try to figure out why one group of people are saved and the other group of people are not saved. Okay, um, Let's look first of all at the people who are rejected or I'm going to call them, uh, uh, we're going to look at it as a case study of the rejected. Who are they? What kind of people were they? We are told uh, there are three things about them. They are they have religious knowledge. First of all, what we uh, know about them is that they had religious knowledge. Verse 31 says that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They knew um, how they could love God and live for God because they had a knowledge of the Old Testament. Verse Chapter 10, verse 18 also implied they had the word of Christ uh, in them. Also, they had a religious passion, you know, one of the highest values of our culture today is to discover your passion. If you're a college student, one of the things that you will try to figure out is, what is my passion? That's what your friends will tell you. You know, what is, what is it that I'm passionate about? And that will help you figure out a career path. And really, our culture tells us, figure out my, what my passion is and be true to my passion. That is what we strive after. But uh, and, and we think that in terms of religion or in terms of God, that if we simply had a passion for God, that that's good enough. But listen to verse 12. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And the word zeal in Greek, zealous, which in its root word means hot enough to boil. They had a boiling passion 
about the things of God, but it said it was not according to knowledge. This may seem uh, countercultural, but just because someone is sincere and and honest about their pursuit of God doesn't make them right. Okay? It, it's really kind of hard to uh, accept, but sincerity of passion and being true to that does not make someone right. The third thing we know about them is that they had religious ethics. Chapter 9, verse 31 says that they pursue the law that would lead to righteousness, it was not merely a religious uh, knowledge that they had, but they try to live according to it. And so if we were to try to figure out if a person is saved or not, if God were to accept them or not, we would look at what is it they know, what is it that they're passionate about, what is it uh, that they live for, and we would say, hmm, this is probably a description of the saved person or the called person. Well, we just described that, those kinds of individuals, but it was a description of the rejected. Richard Loveless uh, talks about what we assume is justification. We, automa- we all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of satisfaction. We start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in religion. Since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record to achieve a sense of peace. Now, uh, we fool ourselves because if we simply think by what we know and what we feel uh, will cause us to be uh, called or justified or saved. You think, no, that's not it. Now, then what is it about this group of people that caused them to be unsaved or not called or rejected, all right? So what is at the pathological essence of someone who is not a Christian? This is so important. The key is found in chapter 10, verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 3. So the question is, what makes a non-Christian a non-Christian? Okay? It's not what they know, not what they feel, not what they do. What, in essence, makes someone a non-Christian? Chapter 10, verse 3. He describes it, Paul describes it, he says two things about them, and it's the same thing um, in the flip side of the coin. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, this person is uh, inconsistent with how God views righteousness. He does two, two things, or they do two things. First of all, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They were trying to seek their own righteousness. I, I say that they pursued a righteousness of self. See, this group of people may believe that they are sinners, they are broken, they are uh, insufficient, but they believed that they could become good enough, they can work hard enough, that they can do enough for them to be saved, that they can establish their own righteousness. They were self-sufficient. 9.32 says that Israel pursued the righteousness not 
on, uh, based on faith, but on works. Now, the flip side of that coin is that they did not submit to God's righteousness, chapter 10, verse 30. They rejected whatever offer God gave to them. They were self-sufficient and believed that they did not need salvation offered by God. Chapter 10, verse 16 um, said that they understood the gospel but made a decision to not obey but rather reject the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, have they? Uh, that's what Paul says in verse 16. Here's the, here's the thing. Okay, What in its essence, pathological essence, makes someone a non-Christian. It's not what they do, not what they know, what they feel, right? Those things don't make someone a non-Christian or unsaved, but none of those things make someone a Christian or saved. What is it at the pathological essence is at the core of someone who is not justified or rejected? It is this. It is that they believe that they can save themselves, that they can become good enough and they reject the offer given by God. It is them saying, I want to love God, but I don't want to be obligated to God. It is them saying that I want to be like God, but I don't want to worship God. It is them saying that I don't mind having God as a friend, but I don't want to have God as my master. Does that make sense? It is at the core, the core essence of a non-Christian is I don't need God because I can be God. I need me to be God. I don't need God to be my God. At the core essence of a non-Christian, someone who is rejected is their belief that they can be their own God, that they're in some ways good enough. And even as Uh, people are in the church for a long time, if that is at the core of their being, they may be very moral, they may uh, know the Bible, they may try really hard, but at the essence, they're their own God. Brett McCracken, he's a friend of our church, he's a friend of mine, he wrote a book called Uncomfortable, and uh, one of the things that he mentions about the gospel is this idea that, is, that grace is very scandalous and it rubs against what we believe to be uh, salvation. That, that even sometimes the best of Christians, we still in our core believe that some people deserve to be forgiven while others do not deserve to be forgiven. Okay? He references a movie called Secret Sunshine. It's a Korean movie, and I was kind of surprised that he watched the Korean movie, and um, of all things. And the protagonist is a, a lady by, na- uh, by the name of Shine. She lost her husband. She goes back to her hometown, her husband's hometown, with her son. And her uh, son is tragically kidnapped, held for ransom, and murdered by someone that they knew. She's just completely devastated. She not only lost her husband, now her son was murdered. Um, the man whom she had known is convicted and is serving time in jail. And Shine, uh, she's just completely broken, devastated, but she finds God. And so she's spending a lot of time at church praying, you know, weeping and such. She joins a cell group, like thing. 
She develops some good, intimate friends. They, they comfort her, speak truth into her. At the urging of her uh, friends and as well as the pastor, um, she, you know, she, she learns forgiveness and she decides or they decide that, that she should forgive the murderer. And so she goes and visits her son's murderer at the prison. She goes in there nervously. She had picked some flowers from uh, the street. Imagine how difficult this is. But she said, well, you know, God forgave me, so I can forgive. I need to present the gospel to this man. She sits down, and she's nervous, and he comes out. And one of the first things that, that she recognizes is that he looks a lot better than she thought he would be. Um, and when they sit down, they, they do a little bit of small talk, and, and he, doesn't look, he doesn't really make eye contact. And she begins to share how she had found God and God had forgiven her and that, that the love of God has given her comfort and solace and that the reason why she's here is because she wants him to also meet God and find forgiveness. God can forgive you. And to that, he's, he, he lights up a little bit and he says, thank you so much for coming. Actually, in prison, I found God. And God has forgiven me uh, and I'm, I'm so grateful for his grace and things of that nature. So he, he's giving her his testimony now to which she suddenly looks perplexed and looks at him and says, God has forgiven your sins? And it was unfathomable to her. Yeah, God can forgive my sins, but God forgave your sins? And she finishes out her visit. She goes out into the parking lot with her friends and the pastor. And then she, she, on the parking lot, she faints. She just can't get over the fact that God can forgive a bad person. That's the scandal of the gospel. You see, most of us theoretically in our knowledge believe that God can forgive us, but in our hearts, we still believe God only forgives good people, not bad people. And we try so hard to be good enough to be forgiven. That's not the gospel. That's not grace. The people the group of people that God introduces us to or Paul introduces us to here are those that have been rejected by God because, and in chapter 9's perspective, because they have rejected God, because they were self-sufficient. Now let's look at the called. We are told a few things about them, that they were not more religiously moral or ethical. We said that in chapter 9, verse 30, you said they did not pursue righteousness, uh, we are told that they were not more religiously passionate. In fact, chapter 10, verse 20 said that, uh, God, um, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. He's implying uh, the saved or the called are people who did not seek God or ask for God. They were definitely not more passionate or zealous about the things of God. We do know that they had heard the gospel message. 
Uh, in chapter 10, verse 14 and verse 15, how then will they call on him in whom they had, have not heard? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Chapter 9, we may have wondered if God is so sovereign do we actually need to go to Kyrgyzstan or China or Honduras or Indonesia to preach the gospel? And uh, in chapter 10, God is telling us clearly, yes, we need to send, we need to go, we need to proclaim. That's how God's working this. Okay, okay now going back, what in essence is makes someone a Christian then? Right? It's not how they live, it's not what they know, it's not what they feel. What is it at, at the pathological essence of someone who becomes a Christian or someone who is saved or someone who is called? The core of this passage is chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. So catapult, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, all right? You guys remember? Chapter what? 10, verses 9 and 10. Okay, thank you. There's one person who's like, thank you, one person who's listening to me, all right? Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. So if you forget, okay, what this was all about, 9, 10, uh, 10, 9, and 10, right? What in essence makes someone called a Christian saved? It is a decision that they made. It is a choice that they're making. And uh, Paul uh, teases it out in three ways. There are three things that this person does. Uh, they're talking about essentially the same thing, but in three different ways, right? Uh, the first of all, uh, what they did was, um, verse, well, let me just read verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Uh, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved saved okay it's clear this is this is what happened you do this and you're saved okay you do this uh and you're not ashamed okay what is it that these people did first of all they believed in their heart they believed in their heart that god raised jesus from the dead verse 11 reiterates the formula everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame one must believe you have a choice. It is not a feeling. It is not a set of knowledge, but a choice. Will you believe? Will you make a decision to believe? Verse 14 mentions belief twice, as well as verse 16. The term faith is mentioned five times in the passage. It is not just a belief. It is believing in the heart. You know, unfortunately, in the English vernacular, uh, heart is normally seen as the, the seed of emotion. So when we believe something from the heart, we tend to think in English, uh, it is an emotional leaning. Like, mm, I, I, in my heart, like you. You know, that type of thing. But heart is much more than that, although it involves emotion, but it is also seen as the affective center of our being. It is used as the heart, the mind, the character, the inner self, uh, will, intention, and center. It is just who we are inside and making a decision according to it. And the object is that God raised him from the dead. That will we make a decision 
to put our trust in a historical event, it calls it for, but if you've been in the church a long time, you'll kind of, um, and if you kind of really read uh, the teachings of Jesus, this thing that Jesus really rise from the dead, uh, Jesus figuratively put all his eggs in one basket. I am the son of God, right? Um, I, I came uh, to die on your behalf because you cannot save yourself. All of that he said about himself, about you, about the world, he said, I'm going to prove it. If I die and rise again, everything that I say is true. If I die and I don't rise again, then I am just either a deceiver or a delusional teacher. And so when Romans points to this thing, that believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it is not merely a historical fact that we're agreeing to, but it's everything that Jesus said about himself and about us. Will we make a decision to put our trust in Jesus and what he claimed to be? The second way in which Paul says this is that we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, confess is to together speak, is to be in agreement with, is to be in volitional agreement, a promise, a declaration, and a confession. The object of that confession is Jesus is Lord. Knowing that Jesus is God in the form of a man, uh, intellectually understanding that Jesus rose again, even the demons are uh, have that intellectual agreement with you, but the difference between a demon and a Christian is that Jesus is my Lord. That he's my master, he is my God. It is not merely a feeling or a sentiment, it is a decision to say, you're my master, I will submit to who you are. And the third uh, way in which Paul kind of states this is that they called on Jesus. At the end of verse 12, who call on Jesus, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, say, on the name of the Lord, it is not a magical formula. Uh, The the scripture oftentimes uses the name of to refer to the the totality of that being who Jesus represents. We call on him, meaning Uh, because we're desperate, we need. In in chapter 9, it's God who's doing the calling. In chapter 10, it's us calling on God. Okay? It is to appeal to him. Now, I want us to take uh, like an overview pathology of what we've been talking about. Why is it that some people are not saved? Why is it that some people are not saved? I want you to think with me of everything that I say. It was not based on what they felt, what they knew, and what they did, right? But I said that there was a self-sufficiency about them. They pursued the righteousness of self, and they rejected the righteousness of God. Um, and in, in a way, they trusted themselves, and I, I want us to understand what that means. If a person knows God, knows about God, and wants to be friends with God, but they trust in themselves and, and feel like they can be righteous on their own. You know what that means? That means they don't need God because they can be God. They don't need to ever call on God to be God. 
that is at the essence of an unsaved person. What about the saved person and how is it different? Uh, it's not based on ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or gender. It is not based even on how much they know, you know, how good of a life they've lived or are not living. It is not based upon uh, the feeling that they may have. But unlike the rejected person, and this is uh, what Paul has been trying to say in chapter 9 and chapter 10, it is a righteousness that they're pursuing by faith. Because unlike the rejected person, the called person realized, I'm not good enough. I'm sick and there's no way I can ever be good enough. I cannot be my God. I need God. Does that make sense? That is the pathological essential difference between a saved person and an unsaved person. An unsaved person doesn't feel like he needs God. He doesn't call on God. He tries to live rightly or however standard he created for himself. This saved person calls upon God because he knows he cannot be good enough. Let me ask you a question. And I want you to say this with me again. I have a choice. I have a choice. Say, say that again. I have a choice. Uh, you know, we sometimes, sometimes even in the church, we use God's sovereignty as an excuse to not make a choice, to not make decisions on our own. Let me read some passages. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. Joshua 24, uh, 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is... Uh, evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Isaiah 55, 6, six seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Revelation 3.20, I know he's speaking to the church, but I believe the, the broad principle is uh, true. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to, into him and eat with him and he will be with me. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to say with me, I have a choice. I want you to say with me, I have a choice. I want to challenge all of you here today with two decisions. If you've never... have made that choice, if you have thought this whole time that perhaps I am self-sufficient, I'm good enough, or I can become good enough, that's why I've been trying all my life. But you never really needed God then. That perhaps that's, perhaps that's why. 
and you thought that maybe I become, if I can become good enough and then I can receive forgiveness. And that sounds so counterintuitive, but that, that's a pride, that's self-sufficiency talking. That today, will you choose, will you decide to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that you confess with your will that he is your Lord for you to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Will you make that decision? If, and then for those of you who are already saved per se, called, and, and that's a private thing, but you've never proclaimed and made a public proclamation through water baptism, would you then t- today decide that I will commit to uh, making that choice? You know, like on your seat, you have a card. And we rarely do this. But I'm, I'm asking you to decide one of two things if you've never made these decisions. I, that I've decided to believe with my heart Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead, confess with my will that Jesus is my Lord, and call on Jesus to save me, or I will be obedient to proclaim my faith through baptism. I'm going to give us about a minute, and, and the band is going to uh, sing uh, for us as a background music. And I want you to take some time. Would you uh, stand before God? You have a choice. Will you make that decision today?